Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. The White House calls the allegations horrifying and shocking. We're talking about the losing Republican candidate for state office in New Mexico, who is an election denier, who claimed that his own race was rigged. Well, he was in court today, accused of masterminding a series of shootings that targeted the homes of elected Democrats. Now, the arrest warrant for Solomon Pena detailed the conspiracy he allegedly orchestrated to, quote, cause death and serious injury to Democratic officials. And there are disturbing new details tonight, including what police say was found in a car that was registered to Pena, driven by one of his alleged co-conspirators. Fentanyl, nearly 900 pills, as well as more than $3,000 in cash and two firearms with ammunition. Plus, in another story, the question many are asking is, well, how low can someone go or allegedly go? Because a Navy veteran now says that Congressman George Santos promised to raise funds for life-saving surgery for his cancer-stricken dog back in 2016, before he was ever elected to Congress, but then took off with the money. Now, Santos, for his part, denies this story, and we have his response for you tonight. And there are new details tonight about what investigators found when they searched the home of the alleged killer of four college students in Idaho and what it could all mean for the case. I want to get right to the court appearance today of that losing Republican candidate who was charged in connection with shootings at homes of New Mexico Democrats presumably based on his grievances for having lost. Now, joining me, the top law enforcement official in New Mexico, Attorney General Raul Torres. Nice to see you today. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Laura. You know, this is a truly disturbing case that many people are looking at and scratching their heads in part, but also thinking, gosh, is this the result of what happens when you've got election denialism or when you think that you are entitled to a certain result. Now, I know this is not a case that you are personally prosecuting as attorney general, but the accusations here that he engaged in this behavior, talk to me more broadly about what this means for the people of your state and how they view this whole process. Well, the first thing I would I would say is that we're extraordinarily lucky for the swift um, and and very dedicated work of local law enforcement, our partners at the FBI. Um, I've been in contact with with them and the chief of police, and they did an extraordinary job to really hone in and identify Mr. Pena and his associates as quickly as they could, could and then get them all into custody. I think the, the larger lesson for all of us is, you know, really what happens when you have somebody who is so clearly susceptible to paranoid conspiracy theories um, and election denialism and the kind of rhetoric that we've seen all across this country when it comes to having political disagreements. We, we no longer are in a place where we treat each other as, as people that have a difference of political opinion. And for very, you know, far too many people are starting to look at fellow citizens and elected officials as, as potential enemies. And I think this is really taking us down a, a very dark and dangerous path. And it's something that we have to be mindful of. We have to take um, very serious security precautions in terms of how we manage the private information of elected mm. officials, but also see what we can do to, to moderate the kind of speech, the kind of rhetoric that's used that I think 
incites unstable individuals like Solomon Pena and, and others across the country. It is so important to think about how what can often begin as rhetoric more broadly can become marching orders for others in these contexts. And mm. I wonder, you know, for many, you are the top, obviously, the top prosecutor in your state. But I do wonder, what will the role be that you will play in this case? Is it something that's overseeing this particular prosecution because it's a, um, it has some political connotations to it? Or is this a role for someone else within your jurisdiction? So the case is currently being handled by my successor before being elected to attorney general. I was actually the district attorney here in Albuquerque. The new district attorney and I have had a conversation. He's got resources dedicated to it. And uh, we're, I've also been in touch with our federal partners. What we are going to be doing is providing both investigative support um, and prosecutorial, prosecutorial support and examining, frankly, some of the outstanding questions about Mr. Pena's compliance potentially with campaign finance laws. We're, we've been asked to, to take a look at that and offer our assistance and assessment on, on those issues. But the idea here is to, is to bring about the, the swiftest and frankly the most severe uh, response that law enforcement can bring. And my hope is that the U.S. Attorney here and the Department of Justice will take a close look to see if they're is the possibility of, of bringing federal charges, not only for the weapons that were used, but potentially for domestic terrorism. I mean, this, in my judgment, fits the definition of domestic terrorism, and it should be treated as such. Well, you know, I just want to read for you a statement in part that the attorney has said about this. And of course, um, in large part, they're calling that the these are just merely accusations. And you and I both know, obviously, there is still the burden of proof that needs to be met. The statement is, at this point, the charges against Mr. Pena are merely accusations that have not yet been tested by the full rigor of the judicial process. Mr. Pena is presumed innocent of the charges against him. I know, um, Attorney General, you obviously agree with the presumption of innocence and support it, as do I. Um, but I also wonder what you make of the what's come out so far in terms of conversations about masterminding, about the idea. And for some, it might be odd to know that this is somebody who was charged with a felon in possession charge and was still able to still run for office. I understand that although he had a prior felony, he was adjudicated to be able to still run for office. It was not a violation of your state law. Is that right? That's correct. There was actually a, a challenge brought by someone during the last election cycle to see whether or not he was constitutionally qualified to stand for public office. There was a district court judge who, in Albuquerque who ruled that he was, in fact, um, qualified to, to remain on the ballot. And I don't know if the legislature intends to reexamine that, but this is certainly somebody with a long criminal history. And, I, you know, as you noted at the, at the top of your program, this is somebody who is associated with people who are engaged in drug trafficking, and have access to, you know, some pretty significant weapons. And so we're, we're really just at the, at the initial stages of the investigation, trying to understand everyone who was involved, the nature of their involvement, the nature of their relationship, and, and really how he was able to organize so many people to engage um, in, in this concerted and, and very dangerous act of, of political violence. Attorney General, I tell you, it's a really um, very fortunate that we're not talking about a very different result in terms of any shots being fired more broadly and what could have happened to those who were targeted. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you. 
I do want to bring in now one of those officials who was allegedly targeted in these shootings, Adrienne Barboa. She's Bernalillo County Commissioner. I'm glad to see you here. And, you know, just thinking about what has happened, I, I have to tell you, it gives me such pause as so many people have been hearing about this story. I wonder if you can just speak to how you are feeling about this, the fact that, you know, your home was targeted and the seeming motivation appears to be about somebody who lost an election, as far as we know to date. What are you feeling about this? Oh, thank you so much. It's been a range of emotions from relieved, definitely, to know that someone, um, that that people don't have to continue living in fear of this threat, Um, but angry, disappointed, sort of the full range. You know, and thinking about that living in... Oh, excuse me. I didn't want to cut you off. Please continue. I just, you know. I think we have a problem with your audio for a moment. I know we're going to come back to you in just a moment. But just just thinking about what the range of emotion must be like. And one of the things that Adrienne just mentioned was the idea of living in fear for those who were targeted. Remember, all of these different shootings did not take place, if you guys remember, on the same day. We're talking about a, a series of different days when the shootings occurred. There was a question, even beginning in December all the way into January, of the range of people whose homes were targeted and what that looked like and why. And, of course, it's always going to be concerns. We're learning more information about who would have been inside of those homes and who may have been vulnerable, particularly to all this. We're going to work on the audio and sound to make sure that we're able to get her uh, viewpoint on this very important issue that really is a part of a bigger and larger story across this country. Also, more accusations against George Santos, the congressman from New York. A Navy vet is saying that Santos promised to raise funds for this little guy you see on the screen for his cancer-stricken dog, and then allegedly took off with the money. Now, there are also new questions tonight about Santos's claim that his mother was at the World Trade Center on 9-11. We're going to talk about all of that and bring you Congressman Santos's response next. Well, another day, another accusation against Republican Congressman George Santos. You never guess what he's being accused of now. This time, the accusation is that he's taking money meant for a dying dog. And that's not all. He's been obtaining immigration records showing that his mother was actually in Brazil on 9-11, which is interesting considering he's repeatedly said that she was at the World Trade Center in New York. Joining me now is CNN political analyst Alex Burns. He's also the co-author of This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Also joining us, Republican strategist Doug High and CNN national politics reporter Eva McKend. Let's begin with the stories surrounding his late mother. There's been a lot of discussion about how she passed, and we're learning some new reporting about any connection, if there is one, to 9-11. What are we hearing? Well, Laura, he has told variations of uh, the story about his uh, how his mother passed. And he has said or he has suggested that she died as a result of uh, cancer that she contracted from 
um, an air of uh, caught up in the ash cloud, I think is the specific term that he used from her being present at the Twin Towers on 9-11. Well, CNN has obtained immigration records that prove that that is not the case. She was not even living in this country at the time. So not only to be clear, did she not die on 9-11, but she couldn't have died as a result of uh, the tragic uh, events of 9-11 either. So was this included in part, we have like a list, obviously, and it's growing, Eva, as you all know, as you all know, of the things that he's lied about. Has he ever spoken about that in terms of recanting the statements he's made about his mother's death, or is this one of the things he is doubling down on? Well, to date, I haven't heard him uh, do so as yet. And uh, many uh, in the reporting have, have been, especially here at CNN, have been careful about this, have, have not uh, uh, characterized it as a definitive lie, but have said that there continues to be questions about this statement. Now uh, we have obtained these immigration records that seem to suggest that it is a definitive lie because she wasn't in the U.S. at the time. So how could she have died on 9-11 or as a result of 9-11? She has sadly since passed. uh, But the scenarios that he has suggested just don't seem to add up. Well, there are many, gentlemen, um, scenarios that are not adding up. But if I take a step back, and I want us all to for a moment, because we can go through all the different lists of things that he said. And clearly, the idea of his name becoming more and more synonymous with deception and lies is apparent. The thing is, I think you talked about this before, before, Doug, you know, unless he wants to resign, or he does resign, or they expel him from Congress, and there doesn't even be an appetite for Republicans to do so, I'm wondering at what point there will be that pendulum shift away from the interest by the electorate and the, well, this is a fool's errand to keep looking into it. Yeah, I was in the Longworth House office building today where his office is, and there are still cameras there. The house is out of session. He's not there. There are still cameras in front of his office. It doesn't appear to be dying away anytime soon because wild prediction, if we're here a week from now, we'll probably be talking about four or five other things that he's made up, names that he's had that we didn't know about, and all of this. But the mechanism for removing him doesn't change. And expulsion has happened twice since the Civil War, and both times it's happened after somebody has been convicted of bribery. Not accused, not indicted, convicted. So everything that we see of of George Santos that is nonsensical, made up, a lie, and all of that with real legal implications... He hasn't gotten to that point yet, as crazy as that is. And we you know we, we're learning more about this story about um, a dying dog and a GoFundMe um, page and, and alleged stolen funds from it. And I do want to say that Congressman Santos did respond on the record to that accusation to our own Don Lemon um, and, and speaking about that and denying it that it ever happened. And um, he's been pretty adamant in the past, except for a few examples, that he is not a liar, that he's telling the truth. But this campaign finance issue, Alex, and you have followed the money in a number of cases and the intersection of what happens when the money issue comes to play. Is that the kind of investigation and inquiry that regardless of what you might think about in his statements of piling on, um, that those are the kinds of investigations that could upset the apple cart in terms of being able to stay in Congress? I think they could. Look, I think the context that Doug just mentioned is really important, that when expulsion happens, uh, 
it's because somebody gets convicted of a crime, right? Not just investigated or charged with a crime, but convicted. And as you know, that takes a while, right? But I think the nature of the crime could matter a, a lot here, that if he's uh, under investigation for a serious campaign finance fraud scheme that uh, sort of cuts at his basic integrity as a member of Congress. I don't mean his integrity in terms of is he telling the truth about his mom, but his basic integrity in terms of you know, is he on the take from somebody. And, and you know, that's an entirely speculative uh, proposition at this point. If he's investigated for you know, the allegation that you just alluded to is stealing money from a disabled veteran that was supposed to go uh, to help that person's dog. If that turns out to be true, yeah, I mean, I do think that's the kind of thing that could be really, really difficult for his colleagues to uh, look the other way on. But bottom line, it's a really, really tiny majority. That's a Democratic-leaning seat. And if he quits, that might, it, it, it would have to become a really big headache for it to be worse for Kevin McCarthy to have him around than to have a special election. Just, oh, just so real clear, once I want to I get right back to you on this point, I want to come to you on this point. Um, we're talking about a GoFundMe site, right, that there was that essentially the money was taken from that. And GoFundMe has issued a statement about this on the alleged Santos dog scam. They said, when we received a report of an issue with this fundraiser in late 2016, our trust and safety team sought proof of the delivery of funds from the organizer. The organizer failed to respond, which led to the fundraiser being removed and the email associated with that account prohibited from further use on our platform. And as I mentioned, Eva, um, Congressman Santos spoke to our own Don Lemon and said, I have no clue in terms of the accusations of what he's talking about. And the crazy part is that anyone that knows me knows I'd go to hell and back for a dog and especially a veteran. So this is just more of the pile on effect. I have dozens of people reaching out to me in support, sharing their stories about their dogs and cats that I help save and rescue. And yet, there is still the accusation looming from this veteran. Listen to this. I said to him, can you please give the money back to the people? Or there's a veterinarian in Rich's area that we can give the money to and put it into like a fund where he could use it from time to time. It's not your money to keep. And he just wasn't hearing it. I called Rich back horrified. I was really upset because this is Rich's lifeline. I work with veterans every day and dogs save people's lives, you know, and he needed this dog every day to be in his life. And I felt horrible to tell him that I failed him because of feeling that Mr. Holder at the time was going to do the right thing. And he did not. And, and you never got a dollar of the money. You never got anything. The idea this is out there, I mean, he's denying it. I mean, if he was running a legitimate charity at the time, then he should have had no issue responding to GoFundMe, though. But GoFundMe ultimately did pull down the site. We know that Santos's uh, credibility is shaky, to, to put it in the most generous framing. We now have this veteran coming forward, the president of um, a veteran's charity in New Jersey coming forward, putting their credibility on the line. Uh, the man in New Jersey still runs that veteran's organization to this day. We also have the corroboration of, of text messages that were uh, being sent between Anthony DeVolder. You know, the name know. that was that was given, they say they belongs to George Santos that he used. Yes. He, we know that he has gone by different aliases throughout the years. And so it, it is hard to believe Congressman Santos's denials because there is this overwhelming evidence on the other side. Uh, but, but listen, I think that we should not forget uh, to center the concerns of the constituents in the district. This really, I think, underscores that it is going to be really hard for 
Congressman Santos to be an effective member. He was placed on two congressional committees. There are going to be people called before those committees. How does he conduct Q&A with uh, people that are are before him uh, in a legitimate fashion with this cloud hanging over him? Well, don't you think he'd be emboldened, I get your point, but a little bit emboldened, the fact that, look, there was questions whether he would even be on a committee. In spite of all this, he's been placed on committees. There'll be cameras, undoubtedly, every question he asks, anyone in these hearings. The attention will be there, obviously not for the good reason. But there are some people in this world, it might surprise you, who all news is good news, all press is good press. Is that part of what concern is? Why doesn't this matter more in the Republican Party right now? Is it the numbers? It's, it's completely the numbers. And nothing's going to change between now and when the House gets back into session, except that we'll hear more and more stories and anecdotes about lies and things that have been completely made up. What will be interesting and potentially politically changes this is when we come back into session, do any Democrats uh, offer a resolution for expulsion? That then changes the conversation a little bit in a way that it just hasn't over the past two weeks. And if I could just, Laura... The speed at which, which at, at which this story has unfolded over the last couple mm-hmm. of weeks, I don't think any of us can sit here and say uh, that George Santos is, has hit bottom or is anywhere near it, right? That the revelations just day after day after day are staggering. So, you know, it's easy enough for someone like me to sit here and say, you know, the balance uh, uh, of this decision still weighs pretty heavily for Republicans in favor of keeping him around. Is that, is that going to be true in a week? Is it going to be true in 24 hours? Like, we just don't know. It's hard to read the tea leaves in Washington, D.C. We all know that. But again, I mean, if the punishment for all the revelation is two committee assignments, I'm not sure the deterrent value in a lot of this. How do you think those committee chairs feel? They're not happy. Well, they want to see the tea leaves. They want to read them. That's what's going on there. Thank you so much. Stay around, everyone. There are newly unsealed court documents that are revealing what evidence was found in the home of the Idaho killings suspect. One of the things collected a sample of a reddish-brown stain on an uncased pillow. What else was discovered? Significant new developments tonight in the investigation into the stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students. Search warrants used to retrieve evidence from Brian Koberger's home and office have been unsealed. Now, he's the grad student in criminology at Washington State University who's facing four counts of first-degree murder. Now, among the items retrieved, a black glove, possible human and animal hair strands, more on that point in a moment, and materials containing stains. Let's talk about now with John Miller, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, and CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, also a criminal defense attorney. Gentlemen, I'm glad you're here. We're learning about some of the evidence that was collected from Brian Kohlberger's residence in Washington. More than a dozen items, by the way, including hair and stains. In fact, there was a sample of dark, dark red spot, part of a mattress cover with stains, nitrate-type black glove. There was a Walmart receipt, a Marshall's receipt, a, a number of things, computer tower, et cetera. I wonder what stands out to you, Joey, the most when you see this from a dis- perspective of a defense counsel. I mean, I'm seeing what's missing as a murder weapon, perhaps. What stands out to you? 
Yeah, Laura, without question. So first of all, you're going to examine and look at those hairs. Those hairs would trouble me greatly from a defense perspective. Why? Because whenever a suspect commits a crime, there's transference. What does that mean in English? You then leave the crime scene. You go to your apartment. What do you carry or transfer from the crime scene to your apartment? In the event that one of those hairs happens to be one of the people who unfortunately are dead as, as a result of his alleged hands, how do you explain the hair being? there. Second issue, right? Because you know there's going to be all types of forensics with respect to the dog that was in the home. Could you imagine, Laura, in the event that one of those animal hairs belongs to that dog? How do you reasonably explain that that animal hair would have gotten there? No, there's not a murder weapon again, but what do those receipts demonstrate and indicate? Did he purchase something, right, to that extent, or the weapon? So there's a lot that concerns me on the warrant. It's indicative of police doing their job in order to connect the dots, which you know Law as a former as a former prosecutor is overwhelmingly significant in securing a conviction. And just so we're clear, when we talk about the animal hair, it might not be obvious to the audience as to why this would be an issue. We know that Kaylee Goncalves's dog was home at the time of the murders. Right. And so the idea of the significance of an animal hair transferring as you're talking about from one location to the next, John, I want to bring you in here because. You know, this list of things that were recovered and, of course, the search warrant unsealed at this point. One thing that was a part of it, they were also looking for blood and they collected a dark red spot. That's the phrase, a dark red spot and other stains. What strikes you about that? Well, they've got a a stain on an uncovered pillow. They want to know what that stain is. That'll undergo analysis. And that's happening now. They also took a couple of uh, mattress covers um, and uh, are looking at stains on those. But they also took the computer. Uh, The warrant spelled out that they were going to look for any searches or compilations on information on either the victims or their home address, the 1122 King Street address, um, or anything about any of them individually uh, or pictures, social media, and so on. So... From the search of the home, from the office, they have a lot to go through and a lot of science to do before they can tell if they match. You know, on the point about the search, that's going to be so important to think about. And we're obviously seeing in other cases we've been tracking here on CNN and beyond about what happens when one's Google search might intimate or insinuate something else. But the idea here, Joey, of the searches, the idea here of trying to figure out, has this person been in contact with any of these victims before? Did he, was he aware of them? Was he stalking in some way? Is there a connection there? How would you approach this, the idea of, is there a way for his defense counsel to try to stop these kind of searches? Or is it really the waiting game to figure out if the prosecution can meet their burden at this juncture? Yeah. So, Laura, you know, searches, of course, are very important because they gather critical evidence that law enforcement needs in order to potentially secure a conviction. What you always do from a defense perspective is is attempt to what we call suppress evidence. What does that mean? Keep it outside of the purview of the jury. Keep it outside of the trial. But, you know, in order to do that, you have to show the absence of probable cause. You have to show that the nature of the warrant should not have been issued in the first instance. Very difficult under these circumstances 
circumstances, given that police certainly seem to have the authority to do it. In terms of any connection to the victims, we know that the cell phone data is critical. We are in a day and age where technology is just so powerful. How do you explain your cell phone data that connects to the homes at the time that it does with regard to when the murders occurred, with regard to after the murders occurred, with respect to before right, the murders occurred. And so all of that really establishes a connection. You get the DNA, the forensic analysis, and boy, there's just a lot to overcome. So much more evidence and information as well in addition to that. But the, the things I laid out are very powerful for the prosecution. John, are we learning anything more about the other roommates who were in the home at the time? When there was the initial arrest and extradition to Idaho, there were questions, of course, arising from what was revealed the idea that somebody else was there there may have seen this person and um, had come into contact although it wasn't entirely clear whether the suspect in the case actually saw that person are we learning anything more about that evidence or the other roommates so we haven't i mean what we have learned is that because that is the only living person that the that the prosecution and the investigators have who saw the killer face to face um, although the killer was wearing a mask, uh, that is a highly valuable witness in the context of this case. And it is somebody whose name they are seeking to not just keep out of the press, uh, but the, the search warrants that we're talking about today had been sealed for, strictly for the purpose of redacting their names. And when they were released today, only the initials were used. So this is somebody that they're very interested in keeping under wraps even though the suspect is now in custody. Well, you can imagine why, of course, you're talking about college students, and I can't imagine the fear of what they are all going through, and, of course, the survivor as well. John Miller, Joey Jackson, nice to see you both. Thank you. Well, we're also learning about an upcoming book, this from a former prosecutor who investigated Donald Trump. Well, that has the Manhattan DA saying, uh-uh. Could it impact ongoing investigations, this book? We'll talk about it next. While there are concerns tonight over whether an ex-prosecutor's book could damage the Manhattan DA's investigation into one Donald Trump, DA Alvin Bragg's office sending a letter to publisher Simon & Schuster and former special prosecutor Mark Pomerantz asking now for 60 days to review the contents of his new book. Now, that book is supposed to come out early next month and promising with an inside account of the ongoing investigation. Now, Pomerantz was brought in as a special prosecutor under then-DA Cy Vance before resigning last year amid disagreements with Bragg over seeking an indictment against the former president. The DA's office writing, quote, based on the pre-publication descriptions of his book and the benefit of current knowledge of the matter, but without access to the manuscript, this office believes there is a meaningful risk that the publication will materially prejudice ongoing criminal investigations and related adjudicative procedures, proceedings, excuse me. I should mention also that Simon & Schuster also published my own book. I want to bring in CNN political commentator Maria Cardona and welcome back Doug High and CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams is here as well. I think we have to set the scene here for a second because this is the same person, the same attorney who wrote a blistering resignation letter about his Mm -hmm. time at the DA's office. And I'm quoting from it. He says, 
I believe that Donald Trump is guilty of numerous mm. felony violations of the penal law in connection with the preparation and use of his annual statements of financial condition. The team that has been investigating Mr. Trump harbors no doubt about whether he committed crimes. He did. I believe that your decision not to prosecute Donald Trump now and on the existing record is misguided and completely contrary to the public interest. Now, of course, that makes people want to lean in and go, what is in this book? That might be obviously driving the concerns here. But Elliot, the idea that there's an ongoing, and that's the phrase, yeah. an ongoing criminal investigation, which might be news to some people that's still happening. Um, it, are they right to need this review? Yeah. Oh, oh, they are absolutely right to, to need this review. Look, let's set aside for a second the merits of the book, whether it's right to prosecute him or not. Put that all aside for a second. How is it humanly possible for him to write a book that doesn't either, A, break some office confidentiality or even maybe the law if there's grand jury issues? Look, one of the in the promotional materials for the book, what they say is a fascinating inside account of the attempt to prosecute Donald Trump. Now, if you believe the office, they're still trying to prosecute mm -hmm. Donald Trump. So how can a book be written uh, that that doesn't violate office secrets if this investigation is still going on? So, look, we could all be surprised by what's in it. And maybe he figured out a way to write it neatly and cleanly around mm -hmm. the office policies. But it just seems a little bit close to comfort. It's not uncommon um, for books when ex-government people write books yeah. to have the government review the things you've written. Maybe that happens here. We'll see. Well, let me tell you, and there's the big if. Use the word if. And let's just let's broaden that out for a moment here. Because although the Trump Organization was convicted last month of the decade-long tax fraud scheme, um, Bragg at the time, the DA, said to CNN that they'd closed one chapter and they were opening another. But at the time of this scathing resignation letter, we were on the impression that there had been an indefinite suspension of any type of investigation into Donald Trump. And so I wonder, is the thought of this, Maria, mm -hmm. that, look, are you saying indefinitely suspended because you're an elected official, Mr. Bragg? Mm -hmm. And if you're Pomerantz, are you thinking that he's trying to silence the book so as not to look into the reasons as why not to? You know, that letter actually describes a lot of the frustration from Democrats and progressives who absolutely believe that there is not just one, but several ways that you could criminally prosecute Donald Trump, right? So I agree with that. But at the same time, we, a lot of times we don't know what's being investigated, right? The, that's the sole um, reason why a lot of these investigation, investigations are secret. And, and sometimes we shouldn't know everything. And if they are continuing the investigation, and if there is still an attempt to prosecute Donald Trump, then again, as a Democrat and a progressive who wants to see this man behind bars, I say, yes, more power to him. Let's give him right now the benefit of the doubt and do everything that we can to make sure that when and hopefully when he does, right, not if, but hopefully when he does, that he is able to do it cleanly, that all of the T's are crossed and I's are dotted, that it is airtight, and that nothing can then come back to say, oh, no, that's, that doesn't count because of this leak or because of that leak. But, you know, another way to look at that is the, the DA's office brought this, brought this on their own damn selves by either taking too long to carry out the mm -hmm. prosecution right. or not being clear with what the, whether it was an open investigation or not. So they left this vacuum or this void for one of their former guys to come in and write a book. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of right. a, a little bit of a mess. And I will say um, one of the things that the... Uh, 
uh, DA's office in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, had to say was that these, talking about the disclosures, these procedures, which Mr. Pomerantz agreed to in writing in 2020, were put in place to ensure the integrity of investigations Mm -hmm. and prosecutions conducted by this office. Mr. Pomerantz has neither sought nor received approval to make disclosures relating to ongoing matters at the DA's office, and this office has not reviewed any drafts or excerpts of his manuscripts. On on that point, Doug, and what we've all been talking about here, on the one hand, it's the balance, right? The public is hungry for information, trying to understand the nature of decisions not to indict or whether to indict the whole process, balanced against the perspective mm-hmm. harm on investigations. But there is still a, you know, the perspective and speculation on that part. You know, politics keeps coming into play when you're talking <laughs> about how people perceive mm-hmm. investigations into Donald Trump. Is this kind of thing more ammunition for him? I think absolutely. In public life and in politics, resignation letters are often basically a statement of an agenda. And in this case, it wasn't just a resignation letter. It essentially was a press release that you could almost read into, oh, at the end, buy my book. You didn't say that, <laughs> but it seemed clear that there was something more coming here. I think the challenge you know, for, for prosecutors in this case is prosecutors take a long time for a reason. And it's because they don't want to indict somebody and then lose. They want a conviction. So I have some sympathy for Merrick Garland, who is really getting pounded by the left every day because Donald Trump isn't in jail. And the reality is, if he indicts Donald Trump and loses, well, then why would he have indicted? So you need to have as airtight a case as you can have. That's why these take a while. It also suggests, Maria, that although, again, there was a conviction of the Trump organization, obviously that's an an entity as opposed to an individual. Alan Weisselberg obviously Mm -hmm. going to be serving, I think, a few months at Rikers as part of his plea agreement. But there has been, that was a civil matter. There is is still an appetite for a criminal prosecution, as you well know. But to that point, do you think that the patience collectively is waning, especially among Democrats, about what to do. Absolutely. But, I mean, that, yes, yes, there is, Laura. I'll answer my own question. Yes, there is, Laura. The next non-rhetorical question for you, though, is what do you do about it? Well, I think that is where you kind of have to take into consideration. And it's hard because we have no idea what the DA has, right? That's part of the frustration. And I don't know if there's a way for him to come out, to your point, and say one way or the other without giving it all up, because yes, we are impatient. And if this is not going to amount to anything, and the DA already knows this isn't going to amount to anything, then that's that's one thing. And, and I, I think that that is, you know, something that everybody will be pissed off at at some point if that ever is found out. But again, if there is a possibility that this investigation, and, and let's remember, Pomerantz has not been there for what, over a year? So he doesn't really know like what has gone on in the mm. in the last year, right? Uh, Michael Cohen was brought in for um, interviews, and he is like you know part and parcel of everything that uh, was happening with Donald Trump. And so maybe it is still happening. Maybe it is really ongoing, and he is buttoning it up. Let's hope he's buttoning it up because yes, our patience is waning. Well, Simon Schuster does intend to publish. I think it's like going to be out on February 7th. Is there anything planned. that can do to stop that, by the way? That was my question. Well, that's, that's the million-dollar <laughs> question. We'll see what happens we'll to you now on February 7th. But Pomerantz did tell this to the Washington Post, quote, I am confident that all of my actions with respect to the Trump investigation, including the writing of my forthcoming book, are consistent with my legal and ethical obligations. So whether we'll see it or not. 
February 7th. Everyone stick around because there's a decision being made on possible charges in the fatal shooting on the set of Alec Baldwin's movie, Rust, set to be announced tomorrow. And the big question that everyone's waiting to hear is, what will it mean and will there be any charges? Well, tomorrow, authorities in New Mexico are going to announce, expectedly, the decision as to whether any charges are going to be filed in the fatal shooting on the set of the movie Rust back in 2021. Remember that Alec Baldwin was holding a gun on the film set at the Bonanza Creek Ranch in October of 2021 when the gun discharged. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed, and director Joel Souza was also injured. One of the major questions during the nearly year-and-a-half investigation was why was there a live round inside the prop gun? Well, I guess we're going to find out tomorrow if anyone will be charged. Also, prosecutors are laying out their case against Brian Walsh, accused of killing his missing wife, Anna. And they claim that his Google searches allegedly tell the whole story. Well, there is chilling new evidence tonight against Brian Walsh, the Massachusetts man officially now charged with murdering his wife, Anna. Prosecutors revealing investigators found items in several trash bags with Anna's and Brian's DNA. They accused him of dismembering his wife and disposing of her body, saying that surveillance video shows a man fitting Walsh's description visiting various dumpsters. They also detailed more than a dozen disturbing Internet searches that say Walsh made after his wife's disappearance, including 10 ways to dispose of a dead body if you really need to. I want to go right now to see a national correspondent, Bryn Gingrass, who's outside the courthouse in Quincy, Massachusetts. Bryn, what is the latest on this case against Brian Walsh? Yeah, Laura, you bring up those internet searches. And if you look at the timeline, there was a frantic search that prosecutors lay out Brian Walsh had in the hours, minutes after uh, they say he dismembered and killed his wife. Now, I want to go and show you some of those searches. January 1st, in the early morning hours, that's when they began, according to prosecutors, where he Googled how long before a body starts to smell. And it wasn't long after that he asked, can you throw away bodies? parts going into the next day, January 2nd. Can you be charged with murder without a body on January 3rd? What happens to hair on a dead body? As you mentioned, more than a dozen Google searches in the minutes after hours after days after prosecutors say he killed his wife. And that wasn't the only searches prosecutors are alleging here, Laura. They also say in the days prior to January 1st, actually on December 27th, they say he was actually Googling you know, what's the best state to get a divorce possibly here pointing to a motive, Laura? What about the DNA evidence out there? Is there any? Yeah. Yeah, so they say there is DNA evidence. If you remember, we have seen that video of investigators collecting evidence at that trash collection site. You mentioned to your viewers already that uh, they have video surveillance allegedly of a man that 
fits the description of Brian Walsh throwing away a number of trash bags at different dumpsters. Well, at that collection site, investigators say they found 10 trash bags with a number of items, some of them containing DNA evidence. I want you to listen to what they collected. Secured were towels, rags, slippers, tape, Tyvek suit, gloves, cleaning agents, carpets, rugs, hunter boots, Prada purse, a COVID-19 vaccine card in the name of Anna Walsh, a hacksaw, a hatchet, and some cutting shears. The purse and boots were described as what Anna was last seen in. And Laura, investigators say that there were traces of DNA evidence on some of those items of both Brian Walsh and Anna Walsh as well. What is the defense saying about all this? I mean, this is an unbelievable presentation by this prosecutor. And again, there is a presumption of innocence. But what is the defense saying? Yeah, certainly so. Of course, he's pleaded not guilty to the charges that he faces. The defense saying they're not going to try this in the public. They are going to take this to court. And releasing a statement in part, it read this. It is easy to charge a crime and even easier to say a person committed that crime. It is a much more difficult thing to prove it, which we will see if the prosecution can do. And we'll, of course, continue to follow this case as it plays out. Brian Walsh is expected back in court uh, in February. We will follow this case. Thank you so much, Brent. I want to bring in CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller, Criminologist and Behavioral Analyst Casey Jordan, and CNN Legal Analyst and Criminal Defense Attorney Joey Jackson. I Just wow, in terms of the different Google searches. I want to begin with you, Joey. I mean, these Google searches, the purported DNA evidence, there is still no body, but they have charged him with murder nonetheless. I wonder from your perspective, just these searches alone, what goes through your mind as a defense counsel trying to defend against this? Lord, that there's a significant, beyond significant amount to overcome as we look there at the specific nature, right, of exactly hacksaw, what happens uh, to hair on a dead body? I mean, it's just incredible the specific nature of the searches to indicate what he was trying to do. You have a timeline with regard to when he was doing it. You have uh, pro- previous to that, as Bryn Grass was describing, where, where it's the best state to get a divorce. And so all of this gives the indication that prior to that, that could have been his motivation, that he wanted a divorce, but he didn't get a divorce. He allegedly did this. And not only do you have the Google searches, of course, Laura, but you have everything else in connection with the case, the misrepresentations to the authorities, the items that with respect respect to the bloody items found in the basement, the fact that he's seen allegedly him throwing items out in trash, the connection of what those items could have or could be, they belong to her, that were in his possession, the DNA will connect that. So what goes to my mind is that this is going to be a Herculean task for any defense attorney to defeat and overcome this case. I mean, Casey, we've been watching um, in many respects, not only these items investigators have secured and the list of what we learned about. But there's been a lot of focus, and understandably so, when society wants to try to understand what's going through the mind of an accused person in a courtroom in particular. And there's been zeroing in and focusing in on his face, on whether he has any expressions. Is he nodding? Is he shaking his head? Is he, is he shocked? Is he looking or appearing in a way devastated and grief-stricken? All of those things are 
indications of something from the court of public opinion and sometimes in the court for the jury. I wonder what goes through your mind when you were watching and studying the face and demeanor of a suspect like this. And I was, Laura, when this was happening live this morning on the news, and I was watching for any what we call the tell. You know, was there something very specific that would show his nervousness? He seemed very very um, devoted to keeping his eyes straight ahead, not blinking. We're always looking for eyes moving left or moving right, trying to see if he's thinking or inventing or going backwards with facts. We call this kind of thin slicing to take in the whole body language and the micro expressions. At one point, he did a deep swallow. But, um, you know, some people like Robert Durst, everyone talked about his tell that he would start swallowing when he was nervous, when he was being asked questions about the murders of which he was accused. And I I think that this guy is very practiced. He, he knew that this was coming. And I wouldn't be surprised if he has a defense ready that's uh, aligned with something like Robert Durst, where he's going to say, if the evidence is overwhelming, as Joey just really laid it out, that it was uh, self-defense, that she attacked him perhaps in a fight, or even worse, she, she just died of accidental or natural causes, and he panicked and got rid of the body. Without a body he could make an argument that you can't convict him. So I think that his brain is just processing that if he plays this cool as a cucumber, assuming again that he's factually guilty, he could get over on the system. Remember, friends of his father, you know, related to the, the, the white-collar crimes of which he's accused, has said that he was in an institution and was, and this is again what they're saying, diagnosed as a sociopath back in the day. So you can't read a whole lot when somebody is having a so antisocial personality disorder, sometimes their manipulation really goes the full length and you can't find any expressions on their face. Well, John, we'll have to wait and see, as you know, about the mental health assessment that might be coming and what defense counsel says about even the allegations from family friends, as Casey alluded to. But there is a choice that would have to be made by this person or the defense team, right? The idea of self-defense and, oh, I didn't kill anyone because there was no body. These are inconsistent notions. One has to be chosen. And I do wonder what ultimately happened based on what Casey's talking about. But there's also the idea, John, I mean, the court records show, obviously, that he's been charged with murder. There's another crime, that of not being lawfully authorized by the proper authorities to did willfully dig up disinter, remove, or convey away a human body or the remains thereof. Um, it's essentially talking about transporting and removing a body away from where it is not being authorized to do so. Does this to you indicate that they know the whereabouts of Anna Walsh's body? You know, Laura, to me, it indicates the opposite, which is they know they're not getting that body back, but that they have enough to show that a person was killed, there are bone fragments, there is blood, there is DNA, there are hacksaws and hatchets and Tyvek suits, the kind that professionals wear um, at a crime scene. Uh, so there's, there's a lot there. I think that they are just adding that charge. Um, and the murder charge is interesting because we don't know if it's murder one, intentional murder, or murder two, um, which could involve negligence. So the, the defense, you know, has some room there. But as Joey pointed out, uh, there's just an awful lot of circumstantial evidence that shows after the murder or after the death of his wife, he went to extraordinarily, extraordinary lengths 
to attempt to cover that up allegedly. So that suggests that something happened that he couldn't explain if he had called the police or an ambulance at the time. And that suggests something intentional in some view. Well, I have to remind everyone that it's just the sadness of this. This is a woman with three children, three little kids. And it's just, it's unbelievable to think of what they must be going through, where if they're wondering where their mother is, what answers they're getting. Are they all together? At one point early on, they were in the custody of Massachusetts, I believe. And so my heart does go out as a mom wondering what will come of her children and, and what they're dealing with ahead in their lives as well. Thank you all for being a part of this conversation. Good to be here. Up next, there is brand new reporting from The Washington Post on a letter from the DOJ to President Biden's personal attorney back in November and what it meant for this entire documents investigation. Well, there are new developments tonight in the investigation into President Biden's handling of classified documents. The Washington Post is now reporting that in mid-November, a senior official in the DOJ's National Security Division wrote a letter to Biden's personal attorney asking for his cooperation with the department's inquiry. That official, that official specifically wanted Biden's legal team to secure the materials from the Penn-Biden Center and refrain from further reviewing them or other relevant documents that might be stored at different locations. This is all according to a letter shared for the very first time with the Post. I want to turn now to co-founder and CEO of All In Together, Lauren Leader, former RNC communications director Doug High, and CNN political analyst Alex Burns. You know, good to have all of you here and thinking about this. I mean, first of all, let me turn to you, Alex. This was mid-November, right? It's January. For everyone looking at their calendars right now, it's still January. There have been a lot of problems since we first learned about this just last week. But this timeline and now this letter, what does it say to you? Is this a significant development in terms of changing how this is being handled, that there was a letter sent? Well, look, you would know better than I would what the sort of legal implications of, of receiving oh, a letter. Oh, don't you that off like, to me. No, no, no. no, no. no. I'll, I'll, I'll totally draw on my, my own actual expertise here, which is the... The politics of it, which is it makes it even more puzzling that the administration has not been uh, sort of more prepared to answer questions in a consistent and forthright way uh, over the last couple of weeks. That this isn't something that sort of uh, sprung up uh, upon them over the holidays or after the new year. Uh, they clearly, at least some people around the president, have had a lot more information than the, the people who speak for the administration to the press and to the public have seemed to have uh, over the last couple of weeks. And I just have to say, it just it, it flies in the face of uh, kind of all good political sense to let the information come out in this way rather than just putting your cards on the table to whatever extent you responsibly can and sort of letting the hand play. Yeah. This seems to be, I mean, it ought to have been simpler. It feels like from a PR perspective, Lauren. And the idea of obviously... Perhaps they were banking on the fact people would draw, which are, and there are very obvious differences between the fork in the road handling of the Trump administration to the, or the prior Trump administration. We're talking about as um, the Mar-a-Lago documents and now. But how did this become this self-inflicted wound? P political crisis management 101 is you never allow the drip, drip, drip of more and more information over time. 
What should have happened in November is they should have come out and said, we discovered this information. We are going to take the next X number of days, three weeks, whatever it is. We are going to search high and low. We are going to make sure that we have done a complete search of all the residences and we will report back anything that has been found. We're getting to the bottom of this. We're cooperating with the uh, with the Ar- National Archives and with the DOJ and other authorities. If they had done that, they still would have obviously been subjected to the same level of criticism, all the sort of whataboutism, which is really central to Republican talking points on everything anyway. It is a whataboutism. He did have classified documents after years of you know, this this whole extended drama with Trump, they're not the same, but it, it almost doesn't matter because it con- continues to be a story that they have lost control of. And that's just political. It's unforgivable just politically. For that reason, I mean, the idea of it almost sounds like in some respect, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. They would have had the perfect PR strategy, perhaps. They did it's not. We all agree. And it's still problematic. But this notion of transparency in particular, I want to want to play for you what the White House press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, had to say about this common accusation about an absence of transparency. Listen to this. From this point on, are you not going to be taking questions about the classified documents? I have been very clear over and over again, we are going to be prudent here. Uh, we're going to be consistent. This particular matter is being, uh, is being looked at. There's a legal process currently happening at the Department of Justice. And I'm going to refer you to the Department of Justice on any specifics to this particular case and anything that has to deal with um, our what we're doing here, uh, I would refer to the White House Counsel's Office. And of course, they then went back to ask, well, will you have somebody available as a bit of a designate or designee like you have for Admiral Kirby? And that was referred differently as well. But let me ask you, I mean, it almost seems like, and I'm being facetious here, they might want to consider going back to the Trump days of non-transparency and no, and no White House briefings because that was a time when that was an accusation that had, you know, in their perspective, much more meat on the bone. But the idea of transparency, a year or more, a little more than a year from the presidential election, how is this going to play out? Uh, look, it, it, it's a problem for Biden politically, obviously, but in, in a way that I don't think a lot of people will fully, fully accounted for because we focus on the back and forth and the day-to-day on right. this. Joe Biden was elected on one central promise, especially by independent voters, and it was that he was going to be a president that we didn't have to think about every day and that he and his team of pros were not going to make the kind of mistakes that Donald Trump's and his Adams family cast uh, of characters would make. And is this completely analogous to what Trump has done? No, but it's sure in that same neighborhood. And it violates that promise that Biden has made to voters. So they're looking at him. Independent voters are a little different. They're going to say, wait a second, you said on 60 Minutes that this is irresponsible. And but you and that makes him just another Washington politician and not leading up to that promise that voters wanted for him. They want a president you don't have to think about after four years of that. What do you say? No, I totally agree. And I think that, that that's the problem with this, right? Like the talking points on the Republican side are, are, are way too easy on this, right? It's always been this question of whether or not, you know, the, the facts, we all understand that the facts are different, that the Biden White House has handled it totally differently than the Trump White House, which basically did everything possible to conceal these documents, to fight the feds, to fight the to fight the archives on turning them over. It's not the same, but it doesn't matter because the soundbite, which we're going to be hearing just like Hillary's emails all the way through 2016, what we will now be hearing from now until the end of the, until the election in 2024 is that he did the same thing as Trump. They're the same. If he runs. If he runns. If he runs. Oh, he's <laughs> running. Just, just, you know, what I keep waiting for, though, <laughs> it's, it's one of the best uh, instruments in the arsenal of any president who's facing an uncomfortable story, 
uh, that's close to home is to get out there in the country and yeah. show that they're doing work for the American people, right? That's the other part of the playbook. And, and we've not seen the president out there uh, in, in a little bit. And I would, I think if you're, if you are looking for a sign that he's serious about running for re-election, that would be something to watch for soon. Good time well, to everyone, show the yeah, I mean, look for the pancake breakfasts. That's coming up soon, I guess. If you're, really, if you're really serious about running for office, who knows? But stick around. We're going to come back to this and more, everyone, including what's happening in Illinois, because they have a brand new gun law. And the legal challenges, as you can imagine, well, they are already beginning. Some law enforcement officers saying they won't even enforce the law. So what happens now? Multiple lawsuits by gun rights groups have been filed now in Illinois that are challenging the recently signed law, which bans certain guns, including new assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines. Now, this law would also require current owners of assault-style semi-automatic weapons to register those firearms within a year. The courts now will decide whether or not to place a stay, meaning a hold, on the law as soon as Friday. Joining me now, senior contributors, Stephen Gutowski and Je- Jennifer Masia. Thank you for being here today. A lot of questions people have about this and what's happening right now. Um, I'll begin with you, Stephen, on this, because the, the lawsuit is arguing that the ban on assault-style guns infringe on constitutional rights. But Illinois is actually not alone in these types of laws. They're actually the ninth state with an assault-style weapons ban. And so have there been challenges similar to what we're seeing right now? And have those been successful? Yes, there have been a number of challenges over the years to these types of bans. Um, Most recently, you actually saw successful challenges of Colorado's uh, bans that a couple of cities had in place there, similar to the one that Illinois just put in place uh, after the Supreme Court's Bruin ruling. You actually had a Biden appointed judge and a, an Obama appointed judge block those bans. And um, th- that ruling from the Supreme Court really does put these sorts of laws on uh, shakier footing. Now, there hasn't been a, a case at the Supreme Court yet, so it's still uh, undecided ultimately how they're going to come out on this. But they did remand uh, and vacate a lower court ruling on the Maryland assault weapons ban uh, that effectively overturned the ruling that upheld that ban. So we'll have to see exactly where that goes, but but it's on shakier ground for sure. Jennifer, I want to bring you in here because you often hear anytime there's conversations around gun legislation, the phrase naturally emerges, they're going to take your guns, they're going to come take everything away from you. For someone who's a current gun owner, they'll be thinking something similar perhaps based on the talking points or what's being put out there. But the fear that the law could lead the state to take weapons away. Is that well-founded? Well, I mean, law enforcement officials, especially the ATF, they'll just tell you they simply don't have the personnel to ever go door-to-door and confiscate weapons. Um, And in all the states that have assault weapon bans, there is an option that owners, you know, their weapons are grandfathered in, even during the federal assault weapons ban. Um, Those guns were grandfathered in, so those owners got to keep them. Here, there's an option to register the guns, which, of course, is being challenged. But um, the slippery slope argument, um, it really, I understand, you know, why gun owners would fear that. But the truth is, 
even uh, law enforcement officials who support the law, their, their, their interest is public safety. Their interest is not infringing. They tend to not want to get involved um, in gun owners and their weapons. Um, so, But what happens if they don't register within a year? Is there a penalty we know about? Um, there is, but, um, you know, again, this might not survive a court challenge. It is a completely new day ever since the Supreme Court's Bruin decision. Um, that set completely new parameters to decide Second Amendment cases. So now, you know, um, you need an analog for an 18th or 19th century law to uphold a gun law. So there are a couple of exceptions to that analog. So today we had our first federal challenge to this Illinois law, which was just enacted last week. And they're saying that it doesn't survive this new history and tradition test on the basis that um, there is an exception that if guns are dangerous and unusual, so if they're particularly lethal or if they're, you know, owned um, by millions and millions of people, then they are subject to, they fall outside of the scope of the Second Amendment. Hmm. The gun rights groups who filed today's suit in federal court, they're saying these are um, widespread, they're in common use. There are about 24 million um, assault-style rifles that have been produced in the last 30 years. There are 400 million guns in circulation in America. So we're mm. talking about 6% maybe of the civilian firearm stock. So it is debatable. Now, those numbers may not matter to a court that is deciding this. Sure. It's true. I mean, thinking about what they will have to take into account and in all those points, just the, just the sheer scope of the issue in particular. Steve, I want to go back to you on this because... We do know that dozens of law enforcement officials are already coming out saying they're not going to enforce the governor, Governor Pritzker's new law. Um, he actually addressed them today. Listen to what he had to say. It's a lot of political grandstanding by elected Republican sheriffs uh, you're hearing from. The truth is that there's nothing for them to enforce at this point. Uh, the fact is that uh, right now uh, we have one year for people to register the serial numbers of their assault weapons that are in existence. And, of course, we've outlawed the purchase or sale of any of those types of weapons in Illinois going forward. Stephen, when you hear this, I mean, the idea of obviously there is the at times the political statements that are made doesn't necessarily correspond to what can be or can't be done. But the idea of police refusing to enforce the law, what's your take there? Yeah, this is part of what's called the Second Amendment Sanctuary uh, Movement, which is obviously, as you might tell from the name, modeled off of the immigration sanctuary uh, policies that have been put in place for the last decade or so. And this is really kind of the first, I think, large scale test of this movement, because you've seen a number of uh, states where you've had a lot of localities say that they're Second Amendment sanctuaries, that they won't enforce laws they believe are unconstitutional, uh, things like assault weapons bans or uh, confiscation efforts. Uh, and this is the first, most of those statements have been really forward looking. You know, if you pass something we don't think is constitutional, we won't enforce it. Now you're at a point where you have a law that has passed that a lot of sheriffs who are elected themselves, their elected officials, say that these aren't constitutional and we will not enforce them. And you have the governor saying, uh, I don't know how he's planning to try and make them enforce, enforce this law, but he seems to be pushing this idea that he's going to confront them. Uh, and, and I think that you know it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to enforce something like a registration scheme when you don't know who has these firearms to begin with. I mean, this is sort of, you know, you talked about gun owners wow. fearing registration as part of 
uh, an effort for confiscation, it's much harder to confiscate guns if, if the government doesn't know exactly who has what guns. Uh, and, and so that's why you see a lot of this opposition. And these sheriffs are, uh, I think, reflecting the population that elected them in, in how they view this law. And it's going to be almost impossible, I think, to enforce it if even if it does survive a legal challenge without the help of local law enforcement. Because state yeah. police, as Jennifer yeah. alluded to, there's, they only have so many resources in reality. Well, and yet the idea of the difficulty in enforcement it doesn't change the fact that there is still a gun violence issue in this country that people are grappling with. We'll see how this all pans out. Thank you both. There's also a potential power struggle taking shape in the GOP over who will be the standard bearer heading into, you guessed it, 2024. The question, will we see Florida Governor Ron DeSantis take on Trump? Well, tensions are brewing in the GOP over who is going to carry the banner in 2024, with many Republicans looking for alternatives to, well, the scandal-plagued former president after, frankly, a luckluster, lackluster midterm elections. A group of Michigan lawmakers confirming to CNN they sent a letter to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis encouraging him to run. Meanwhile, Trump is making plans to hit the campaign trail later this month in South Carolina. Back with me now, Lauren Leader and Doug High, as well as Alex Burns. Okay, we've got this letter from Michigan lawmakers saying that they will, quote, stand ready and willing to help DeSantis win Michigan in 2024. So the first question is, how does a DeSantis versus Trump race fare? All right. My prediction is that DeSantis is the Jeb Bush of the 2024 cycle. Really? They think they like him because they don't know him yet. Um, he has very, uh, he is very low key personality wise. He does not have charisma. He doesn't actually like campaigning. Um, his own staff have trouble getting him to meet with donors. He's not personable. And I think aside from the like superficial but he won stuff, re-election. he did win re-election and he, you know, for very good reasons in a state like Florida, I, I do not believe that he has the kind of national appeal or charisma that is required for a presidential campaign. But there is this big movement of trying to find the alternative and he looks like an alternative. But most Americans really don't know yet um, the extent to which actually many of his policies and many of his actions are absolutely extreme. Today, one of his his COVID advisor was on television telling people to turn to Jesus instead of vaccines. That is the kind of stuff that does not fare well across the country. So that is my that is my 2024 prediction. What do you say? Look, I don't think it's who's the alternative. It's who the alternatives and there are a lot of people who are yeah, running from uh, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, Christy Noem, and so forth. What's interesting about this letter is that next week is the RNC um, winter meeting. And yes, they'll be electing uh, a chair, whether it's a new one or not. But a lot of the focus of the 168 uh, members of the committee who are going to be there, journalists, activists, party officials, and so forth, are all about this question of, is it Trump? Is it not Trump? And who, who might it be if it's not Trump? DeSantis is on that list, but it's going to be a long list. Well... If he's on that list, and say say it is DeSantis, say the likability notions and everything um, favors him in some way, how about a general election? Can he go against successfully Joe Biden? 
Well, we'll see if, if it is Joe Biden on the other side of that ballot. Right. Well, he says he intends to run. Let's sure. assume for a moment. Everybody we, all, we all intend to run until, until we don't, right? What did Mike Tyson uh, say? Everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Everybody has a plan until 14 members of the Michigan legislature write you a letter. Look, <laughs> uh, I think this this movement around DeSantis is really, really important. A uh, really, really important moment in Republican politics because you do see people at the ground level of the GOP who do have something to lose from really ticking off the base, feeling like it's actually safe to go there and say we want somebody uh, other than Donald Trump. And DeSantis has become kind of the, the the safe space for those people to go, right? You don't see a whole lot of people going out on a limb for a Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo yet. They've got a, a, a steeper hill to climb, but that path this is available. Them too. It, it gives yep. them permission too. Now, the other side of the coin though, uh, Laura, is that you know the fact that you have this movement to get past Trump coalescing around a guy who has not said that he's running and who isn't doing a lot of the stuff that you would typically be doing right now if you were going to run for president, right? Get around the country, speak to an audience uh, outside of Florida, uh, you know, maybe uh, sort of try some muscles in the media outside of those reliable Fox News formats. Um, you know, look, he is a he has a tremendous opportunity to get into this race as a front runner or a co-front runner, certainly the strongest alternative to Trump. But he has never been tested in the way he would be tested in that context. Michigan, Michigan Republicans have good reason to be worried because they just got shellacked in the midterms. I mean, the Democrats really swept the Michigan, uh, Michigan at the state level. And it, this state that has been a very purple state is looking bluer all the time. So the map has shifted in favor of Democrats in Michigan. But, you know, that's absolutely right. Like, nobody really knows yet. He hasn't been tested. And that's kind of the point I'm making. There's this sense that because he is popular in the state of Florida and Florida is so politically important that he has momentum and everyone's talking about him. I, I think he bl winds up blunting his own momentum as soon as he starts running, which is why he's not mm -hmm. saying anything yet. Uh, let the mystery continue. It's almost a political strategy on his part. They when, don't know him well enough to not like him. When Trump announced and announced so crazily early, we thought it was going to really shift the race. The reality is it's caused a lot of people to say, hmm, I can take my time and see what happens here. There's not that rush, in part because Trump has you know, sort of walked out of the gates instead of run out of the gates. So we have to see what happens in South Carolina. Lindsey Graham will be with him. Does that, is that a high-energy event? Sometimes Trump has been low-energy lately. And that'll help determine whether Republicans announce in six weeks or six months or what have you. Important. We'll think about what's going next. And, of course, there's a lot of ifs happening right now. When will we actually know <laughs> the full answer to all of it? But up next, everyone, Tennis Australia is announcing that fans will no longer be allowed to bring Russian or Belarusian flags to the site of the Australian Open. We'll tell you why next. Well, tensions between Russia and Ukraine are now spilling onto the tennis court. And I would mention again, Tennis Australia announcing that fans will no longer be allowed to bring the Russian or the Belarusian flag to the site of the Australian Open. This decision comes after a Ukrainian ambassador objected to seeing a Russian flag during a first-round Australian Open match between a Russian and a Ukrainian player. The ambassador tweeting in part, quote, I strongly condemn the public display of the Russian flag during the game, and I call on Tennis Australia to immediately enforce its 
neutral flag policy. I want to bring in former professional tennis player and ESPN tennis commentator, Patrick McEnroe. Patrick, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to pick your brain on a night like this, especially. And as you know, this is not the first time that politics and sports have intersected, much to perhaps the chagrin of some. It wasn't that long ago affecting the tennis world where you had Djokovic, who his COVID vaccination status was problematic, of course, and not able to allow him to engage in the tournament. I'm wondering what your take is on all of this, knowing that we are seeing this an issue similar yet again. Well, first of all, Laura, it's great to see you, and thanks for having me on. Um, Not only were they displaying the Russian flag during this particular match, but my source is telling me that they're actually – being quite rude to the Ukrainian player, these Russian fans. So that didn't go over well at all with the Tennis Australia officials. I think they made the correct decision here, Laura, to ban the Russian and Belarusian flags from being displayed. You know, the Australian Open's a very international tournament. Uh, Fans come from all over the world. It's got a great vibe about it. You know, people come from all over and display their flags for their favorite players. So it's an unfortunate situation. It's certainly not the first time, as you noted, nor will it be the last time that politics comes into the sporting world and particularly the tennis world, which is such an international sport. And you've got also the fact that you've got individual players. Now, they're not allowed to show their flag if you're Russian or Belarusian. You know, we show the graphics of the players and we talk about their background and where they're from. So that's not happening. They can't show that in the draws uh, as well for these players. Uh, this was, a, I think, the right move. Again, uh, international team events are not allowing Russian and Belarusian teams to play right. within the tennis world, but individual players are allowed to play. Although you may remember, Laura, that they were banned from competing at Wimbledon, the biggest they tennis were. tournament in the world, last year. So it'll be real interesting to see what happens later this year. Uh, as far as that goes, not to mention you mentioned Novak Djokovic, who's here, by the way, trying to win his 10th Australian Open title. He's back. He's gotten a great reception from the Australian fans. And, of course, another big decision for the tennis world will be, will Novak Djokovic be allowed into the United States to compete? Because as of now, he would not be allowed to compete to because he can't get into the country as an unvaccinated non-citizen of the USA. Obviously, there are different circumstances and politics at play in large respects. We're talking about the invasion into Ukraine versus, of course, COVID vaccination status. These are really worlds apart. And yet the connective tissue really is the idea of how politics is intersecting. But with respect to the ban on players, particularly for Wimbledon, for the Russian athletes, the Belarusian athletes, there was a lot of controversy and concern about whether it was fair to attribute and assign the behavior, policy, the actions of a leadership with the actual players. But then there was this moment, if you may remember, with the Russian gymnast Ivan Kuliak, who wore that pro-war symbol in a competition against a Ukrainian player. So it wasn't just the idea of, hey, by virtue of your nationality, you will be banned. It was, in part, behavior. Is there a still going on discussion right now about the tension between what the leaders of a country are doing and what the players are punished for. Well, I think that's a great point, Laura. And that that to me is what this is all about. And I don't believe that the ban of the Russian and Belarusian players at Wimbledon served the ultimate purpose, right, which is to get uh, this war to end, okay, or to make a statement about it. I don't think it worked, to be perfectly honest. Those players were allowed to play in all other parts of the world. 
including in the USA at the U.S. Open, okay, this past September, including the big tournaments all over the rest of Europe. And Europe certainly has strong feelings about the way this war is playing out because it's on their continent. So I think in the long run, it didn't serve the purpose and it penalized individual players for something that they really have nothing to do with what their own government is doing. There's no doubt it's the right decision to ban Russian teams from competition, whether it's gymnastics, whether it's tennis, but you know, there's hockey players playing in the national hockey league, uh, Russian hockey players, and they're playing all over the world in different sports, world soccer as well. So I don't think the tennis players should be punished the way that they were last year at the uh, all England club in the Wimbledon championships. Well, I'll tell you, um, and there's a bell underscoring every one of your points with good reason about the points you've raised, but, you know, the idea of the tension and people wanting to, on the one hand, look at sports as a form of escapism and being able to zone out, not focus on the world around you or the ideas of what happens in different Capitol Hills versions across the world, and yet it is the platform They know everyone's watching, and it's a moment to be able to express oneself and one's grievances. So we will see how this continues to play out. Nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Laura, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And everyone, thank you for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.